Welcome to the SIDCast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. My father said to me, now just remember when you get to New York, never underestimate the other person's insecurity, which is a really wise remark, and I've never known it to fail. Greetings from beautiful Hanover, New Hampshire. My name is Sid Finkelstein, and you're listening to The Sidcast. I grew up in Montreal, moved to New York in the 1980s, and lived in Paris for a time as well. And as it turns out, so did our guest today on The Sidcast, Adam Gopnik. But Adam wrote about it, all of it, in a series of books as well as columns and essays in The New Yorker. And he wrote about it in such a compelling, facile, and thought-provoking manner that you just can't stop turning the pages of his work. Adam Gopnik is one of the most well-known of the New Yorker staff writers, working alongside such legends as Malcolm Gladwell, Ken Oletta, and Andy Borowitz. For Adam Gopnik, writing for the New Yorker was the pinnacle of where he wanted to be as a professional, and it didn't take him long after coming to New York to join the writing staff in 1986. During his tenure at the magazine, he's written fiction, humor, book reviews, profiles, and reported pieces from abroad. He was the magazine's art critic from 1987 to 1995, and the Paris correspondent from 1995 to 2000. From 2000 to 2005, he wrote a journal about New York life. His books, ranging from essay collections about Paris and food to children's novels, include Paris to the Moon, Through the Children's Gate, A Home in New York, At the Stranger's Gate, Arrivals in New York, and most recently, A Thousand Small Sanities, The Moral Adventure of Liberalism. Gopnik has won three National Magazine Awards for essays and for criticism, and also the George Polk Award for magazine reporting. In March of 2013, Gopnik was awarded the Medal of the Chevalier of the Order of Arts and Letters. If that wasn't enough, he's also a songwriter, has co-written a musical, and does the equivalent of stand-up comedy for raconteurs in his one-man show of storytelling in collaboration with The Moth. When you talk to Adam Gopnik, you quickly get the impression that this guy can talk about anything, which meant that our hour together flew by so fast I'll probably need to bring him back next year. So pull up a chair or slap on your earbuds or turn up the Bluetooth because we are going to welcome Adam Gopnik to the SIDCAST. This is Sid Finkelstein and welcome to the SIDCAST and my guest today is Adam Gopnik from The New Yorker. Adam, good morning. It's wonderful to be here, Sid. Thank you for being here. So, you know, I discovered your work from Paris from the moon. Paris to the moon. To the moon. From to. (laughs) Because we were moving to Paris not long after you probably had come back to. uh, 2001 was when we came back. 2001. So we moved in 2000 and was my first and only kind of exotic sabbatical. We were there for a year and we came across your book and I read the book and I just loved the stories and Mm -hmm. it just kind of gave me a feel. Oh, so this is what it's like. And you've written memoirs, several memoirs and lots of other books. Three volumes of memoirs, which I think is more than Thomas Jefferson ever wrote or Abraham Lincoln or many other greater <laughs> worthies. I mean, three volumes of autobiography That's with funny. nothing sufficient to uh, autobiograph. Oh, I'm not sure about that. But did you find that book a lot of fun to write? I'm curious about different books Paris, and styles you've written. Paris the Moon? It was a very happy period, not just in our life, but in the life of the world, if you recall, nice. in 1995 till late 2000. Not unlike the 90s of the previous century, the 1890s and the 1990s, Mm -hmm. that certain things 
in common. They both were periods of enormous abundance, a great cultural confidence with a sex scandal Yes. Riveting them apart right in the middle. Oscar Wilde in London. I was thinking of how much the British Empire was at its apogee in the 1890s. The American Empire mm. very much at its apogee in the 1990s. And that's one of the themes of Paris the Moon. And it's kind of an under theme of it. Early on, there's a scene where I'm watching the weather, the European weather on CNN, right? And they're talking about, you know, don't forget to, if you're traveling to St. Petersburg, don't forget your raincoat. <laughs> and that would have been unimaginable 10 years before yes. that St. Petersburg would be one more stop on the businessman's itinerary. So it was a very confident time in the world. You remember well the end of history, the triumph of yes. liberal democracy and all of those things. Paris, and that's one of the reasons why I think I was drawn to being there, though in some ways participant in that, was in lots of ways exceptional because Paris was the one place in French culture that hadn't fully bought into the dominant fact or myth, take your pick, of the Anglo-American Imperium. London in those years was this glistening, glittering Cool Britannia. Yes, it was booming London. Booming yeah, the financial the, center. Yes. Yeah. It was the capital. You know, in many respects, it was and remained for another decade the capital of the world. The financial gaps where people were drawn, including the French, you, as you recall, by the end of that decade, I think it was, I'm making this up, but it's not far off. The fourth largest French city was the French community in London yes. at that time. But Paris remained stubbornly unconvinced. And I always put it in the terms of one of my favorite of all French books, the great Asterix books from the Gandassini, the comic books, where there's one little Gaulish village that continues to resist the Romans in the Roman Empire. And Paris is a little bit like that. They weren't buying into the values, the cuisine, the styles, the manners of the late or the high American Imperium. And that was one of the things that made, I think, made the book interesting is you had a kind of amused spectator from yes. the heart of the American Imperium in a place that was resisting it. But with all of that kind of high level abstract stuff said, the truth said is that for me, it was a period of enormous happiness and utter exhaustion. We were raising, we arrived in Paris with a baby in our arms and we were very much parents of our generation that is completely obsessed with yes. our kids. And so when I think about my actual experience then, people somehow have the two things are true. One is this people have the notion that I was sort of flaneuring around Paris in a, in a, a straw boater. Yes. Yes. <laughs> in a straw boater. When in fact all I was doing every day was working and then taking Luke as he got older to play to our son to the Luxembourg Gardens to go watch the puppet show or to play. We had a very kind of enclosed life outside of the life I was practicing having to, to write. It was incredibly beautiful, time of enormous happiness, but of a very kind of inner happiness. And people since have often told me in the 20 years now since that book was published, oh, we went to Paris and we went to all the places <laughs> you mentioned. And I'm grateful for their avidity and the intensity of their enthusiasm. But at the same time, there's a little ghost, a little flea in my consciousness that says, those were just the places where Luca would sleep, you know. <laughs> those were just the places where a two-year-old in a poussette, a stroller. It worked for the kids. It, yeah, so it worked now for the kids. It did. It's a map of Paris <laughs> when, in fact, funny. it was actually a map of a child. And then, of course, the book ends with the birth of our daughter, Olivia. And actually, when she was very little, she would be kind of tragic about that. She Because she was always wanted to keep up with Luke. He's exactly five years older than she mm -hmm. is to the day. And she would say, and I say, oh, that's a book that daddy wrote. She said, yes, I know Luke does things. I get born. <laughs> <laughs> you can't win. <laughs> no. And she does get born in it. The additional, just talking about kind of the layers of 
retrospective significance that I've, not that I sit around rereading that book. I haven't looked at it, I guess, in a very long time. But the other sort of level of significance for me is that those two kids who are the centerpiece of the book, Luke and Olivia, are now both adults. They're both off in uh, university. And for me, they still very much live on the pages of that book. Yeah. Yeah. It's very compelling. And it brings up certain anecdotes and stories. I didn't look at the book again to prepare for our chat. But there are things that stay sure, in your head. Yeah. I remember the doctor and how great French medicine was. I remember going swimming, taking your kids swimming. And then there were a lot of peculiarities about living in France. The French do things differently. The French, that was kind of the theme of the thing. The French do things differently. They do things differently. Yeah. yeah. The one you mentioned just now, the story called Angels Dining at the Ritz, which is about when my wife was pregnant with Olivia, with our second child, and we had to spend, we couldn't go off for our usual Cape Cod holiday. So we stayed, at, we bought a membership to the pool at the Ritz Hotel, and it. my son had his first passage in the sadism and glory of human love. Of all the things I've ever written, truly said, that is my single favorite. Everybody asks you, or not everyone does, but occasionally asks, what's your favorite of all the things you've written? And I would answer without hesitation, that story. Because on the surface, it's a part of the book. It's a story about Americans in Paris. But for me, at a deeper level, it's very much about men and women and sexual attraction. I know that sounds like an odd thing to say about a story about six-year-olds in the Ritz. But I always love writing of all kinds, my own included, when I can pull it off where a sort of a sugared surface in the best sense covers a more complicated cake, Mm. if that's a metaphor at all. And I was very atypically pleased with that story. Not surprising then that that's one of the two that I just mentioned to you. That stuck in my head. That pleases me that it did. And yeah, yeah, it gives you a warm feeling, but it's not just reading a happy story. And you could put it more succinctly than I just did. Not quite as elegantly, (laughs) but succinctly. (laughs) And I remember when we moved to France, to Paris, it was so funny getting internet service. Oh, yes. That was like a whole thing. Going to France Telecom stores. We want to get internet service. Fine. Fill out this long form. Goes on and on and on. And then they take the form and they go to a computer to input it yes. right there. Right, at, right in front of you. I it know. was stunning. And I said, this is beautiful. I mean, yeah. ordinarily, you should just get kind of pissed off at this inefficiency. But I thought this was beautiful. As you know, that France Telecom and its bizarre administrations is kind of subthematic in yes. the book. And I talk about how you'd go to buy a, this takes us back a decade, right, to a fax ribbon. And those <laughs> is our, our fax. And that was hard to believe, right? Fax was the key communication, right, before yeah. email came in as the dominant form. And you'd go to buy a fax ribbon and you'd see it there on the counter behind or on the shelf behind the woman at the counter. And you'd say, I need the Telecom Galeo 5000, 5000. And she'd say, sorry. She'd look at her computer and say, no, it's out of stock. And you could see it. Right I said, oh, that's excusez-moi, madame. C'est juste là. C'est cette ruban It's right there. Right it's right there. C'est, c'est évident. C'est très évident. C'est juste... Nope, she wouldn't even turn her head. <laughs> that is really If it didn't exist in the, in the computerized inventory, it didn't exist. Which led me to what I think was a, and remains a truth about France, which again is a comical in, in our interaction with yes. it, but actually has a darker side. And that is what I came to call the parallel paper universe. Mm-hmm. It's no longer paper, it's pixels, but it's the same idea that mm-hmm. the glory and triumph of French, what they call administration, bureaucracy, is extraordinary. It goes all the way back, as you know, to the 17th century, what they call Colbertian, after Colbert, the great mm-hmm. organizer of the, the government. And it's amazing. France is a very well-governed country, but services on the whole tend to be, when you finally get them, tend to be quite efficient. But And the people, this is one of the things that's always been impressive to me, when you go into the French ministries, though they're extremely chilly, they're also extremely smart. The people who staff them are very well-educated. But the other side of that is, is that bureaucratic triumph means that if something has not happened on paper, or these days in pixels, it has not happened at all. It doesn't exist. Doesn't exist. And that 
enabled things like the greatest of all French tragedies, you know, the deportation of the Jews in the 1940s. And all of that, I attended the trial of Maurice Papon, the great French functionary right. in Bordeaux, who had been responsible for a lot of the deportations, and had then gone on to have a glittering career in the French government. And it was quite plain that for Papon, these were all calculations on paper. The fact that the lists that were being made represented people, children, who were being deported to Auschwitz was just to remove from him, and he felt indignant when he was being examined. Because self-evidently, my job as a functionary, as a haut fonctionnaire, is to juggle paper. That's what I was being asked to do. And I juggled the paper, organized the paper with great efficiency. So why are you putting me on trial <laughs> wow. 50 years later? That's the great risk in that particular kind of triumph of organization. But to settle back to earth when it takes the form of getting online or buying mm -hmm. a fax ribbon, it is touchingly comical. You know, you're making me think also about bureaucracy is not unknown in America or anywhere else, to be sure. And now in business world and leadership world, which is kind of a big part of where I spend time, the word empathy has become overwhelming. It started in a sense with Daniel Goleman started to popularize work on emotional right. intelligence. Mm -hmm. And it's everywhere. And the word empathy has started to become the word. And so when you describe this functionary, he could do his job but where does empathy fit into that? And just wasn't a relevant concern. The idea of an empathetic French functionary is very difficult <laughs> one to mention. What the French would say, of course, this is a classic French reproach to America, is, oh, you only have fake empathy. Fake intimacy is something that the French often decry in Americans, right? In America, you get big smiles and a hug and how are you and for a lot of first naming and no underlying emotion at all. You know, it's funny right now talking about that because now we have systematized empathy, right? I've got what's your name, Siri on my phone, or oh, yes. who's the one on, on Am Alexa, Alexa. On, on Amazon. And they have been progr literally programmed to simulate empathy. What can I do for you? I'm sorry, I didn't understand you. Can you say that over again? All of those, all of those kids. Wait one moment. Maybe I can get you assistance, right? And it's, and it's utterly, <laughs> it's unbelievable. utterly in person. And in fact, there's no more empathy in it than at least the French experience is genuinely human if grouchy. So I suppose that's true. Being light of heart, Sid, about it right now. The truth is when I was living in France, I would often get crazy. My wife, who has infinitely better social antennae and manners, curious, this is truly a digressive footnote, but Hemingway, the great Hemingway, mm -hmm. in his French novel, The Sun Also Rises, mm -hmm. singles out quite kind of at random, as our kids would say, a Canadian woman in that book who makes one brief appearance just so Hemingway can say she had the usual superb social manners of Canadians. <laughs> well, my wife is Canadian, has superb social manners, and she found the magic formula to open all French bureaucratic what, what's boxes. What's that? You simply turn to your functionary and you say, Ah oui, je comprends. Qu'est-ce qu'on peut faire? Yes, I understand. What can one do? In other words, accepting, not disputing the right. explanation, no matter how outrageously yes. illogical it is. And that and technique worked. Always works. And then turning to the functionary and saying, I recognize that you have the power and I have not. Yes. What can one, what can we do? And if you do that, I don't know if it works in every case, but I was astonished to see how often it worked. You put yourself in a position of a rational supplicant to somebody who has authority and expertise. And if you're prepared to recognize the authority and expertise mm -hmm. of the functionary, the functionary then feels mollified and can will usually begin to 
actually attempt to do the thing that the functionary <laughs> should have been doing without being mollified. Just one last thing about this, and it may yeah. have been you that wrote this, right. but the expression that I learned is, excusez-moi de vous déranger, mais yes. est-ce que c'est possible de, I'm sorry to disrupt you to, right. to take Don't, any of your right. time away, right. but could you do something? Yes, which one shouldn't normally have to ask a government employee whose job, <laughs> after job all, is to, to do, do that. Is to do that thing. But yes, that's another very good thing. The side of that that's appealing with all of its insane frustrations, and by the way, French people, particularly French entrepreneurs, get even more aggravated by it than Americans do. I cannot tell you the number of French entrepreneurs, small businessmen, people starting lines of jewelry or fashion or trying to import American wine, whatever it might be, who just got to the point of absolute despair, it's not too big a word, mm -hmm. and then went off to London or sent their kids to America. I've seen that, yeah. Yeah, because they find it so stifling. And the difficulties of trying to start a business in France are, as you know, often overwhelming. Yeah. I remember seeing this. I was in somewhere in China, Shanghai, right. some giant city, yeah. sitting by myself. And one day I was working and I had some time off and I was sitting at this kind of <clears throat> restaurant bar and a group of five or six young people came in speaking perfect French. So I started chatting with them and they were all entrepreneurs. They all were, yeah. and they were creating business in China, something really, and they were not Chinese, they were right. French. Yes. And they said exactly what you have just said. Yeah. They just couldn't take it. And that was not the, and they were sad about it because yes, they love they love France. Deeply patriotic in the good sense, culturally loyal, but they find that the constraints, simple things, many of which we as Americans can be sympathetic with. You basically can't fire anybody once you've hired them, right? And you remember yeah. there was the, all of the action about the premier contrat, first contract, right? My kids, both of whom are college students, both got jobs, one as a bartender, the other as a barista over the last couple of years. Mm. And it was understood that they would come in and do the job and then they would leave the job yeah. or could be fired from the job. And it was not any big deal. In France, a job like that require, has the whole force of the providential state. Yes, which you see it you see it in action with the, the traditional classic French show waiters yes. who are incredibly professional, yes. but they expect to be respected for yes. their work. Yes, and I find that totally sympathetic and admirable, and it's terrific from the point of view, as I made this, I say this at some point in the book, right? This is infinitely better than I do, right? But every economy, we have a role both as a producer and a consumer. Mm -hmm. America tends to, we tend to identify with our role as consumers and we judge things, yeah. good or bad, depending on how they suit us as consumers. In France, everybody identifies with their role as a producer, right? The waiter is producing service, mm -hmm. right? And he expects to do it with expertise and to be respected for it. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's a story I've always liked, absolutely true, is that my wife who, as I say, has beautiful capacity for connecting with people. Mm -hmm. And she was got to know all the small merchants, the petite commerçante in our neighborhood. And at one point in the month of June, I believe it is, there's a set designated period for sales, for sold, when you're allowed to put things yep. on sale. And she was talking once with a woman, I think in a linen store or something, and she said, well, why is the period so short and so regulated, the period when you can put things on sale? And she said, oh, madame, because if it wasn't, then what would happen is people would lower their prices, one shop to another. And then as prices got lowered, I would have to lower my prices as well. Mm. And then someone might go out of business, in the, which wow. is kind imagine of, that. imagine that, the yeah. logic of imagine that. price competition. Yeah. And yet, as we all know, there's something in that, right? The reason there are no little bookstores left in Manhattan or so few of them is because Amazon can lower prices at will yeah. with the goal in mind of driving bookstores out of business. That's their business model. That's not just their <laughs> business model. It is the capitalist system yes. in place, and it's led to tremendous amount of inequality, but it's also led to the ability of an Amazon to innovate in untold ways. 
gaining crazy power along the way, which is a different issue. Well, this is very interesting because there's a bit of a segue to your most recent right. book about moral liberalism. Oh, let me just add quickly to it. I'm the Amazon center, right? And when I, you know, I'm sitting there at my desk, I see someone's done a new book about segue into that subject, John Stuart Mill. It's happened just the other day. Fascinating book. I can't go out to the corner bookstore and find it. And I go on Amazon mm -hmm. and there it is. You and it's it. on one click and I can literally get it delivered to me the next day. Yeah. It's astonishing, right? Yeah. So, and in fact, if I really wanted it right now and I didn't mind reading it on a screen, I could get it on my Kindle within, truly within 60 seconds. Right. That's astounding and it's hyper efficient. And it has social costs. And it's exactly the opposite of your description of the French producer yes, consumer. Yes, exactly. What does Jeff Bezos always say? It's not just about satisfying customers. Yeah. We're going to delight customers. Yeah, yeah. And that becomes a common thing. And that's right. considered state-of-the-art business. Yeah. And there's a lot of benefit. I mean, it's great for customers to be right. treated uh, well. But it means that it's a pretty rough situation on the other side of the economic equation. It's Look, as a writer, as a producer of literature, it's not necessarily better for me, right? I mean, Jeff Bezos will tell you, and I actually spent a weekend with him once, not alone. It was not like a romantic weekend but with <laughs> yeah. other writers. Is that, well, it's in your interest because you sell more books. But the truth is, at those prices and in those reasons, and if you're not selling a lot of books right away, it's hard. Your book doesn't, so to speak, remain at the front of the bookstore for any length of time. And of course, the same processes. In books, we're actually quite lucky, as you know, because the coming of digitization hasn't really destroyed the book business. People still buy hardcover books. But all my friends in the music business, you know, I have another surreptitious clandestine life as a songwriter. And all of my friends in the music business basically know that the music business is no longer a business. The CD, the recorded yeah. music business is no longer a business. It's simply been swallowed up by streaming, which has a very bad economic model for the producers, wonderful one for the consumers. And so you make a, where as recently as 20 years ago, you made a CD mm -hmm. with an advance from a record company who believed that they could make money from it. Now, essentially you make recorded music as a giveaway in order to support your, and you make your money if you can as a concert performer. Yeah, it's completely shifted to yeah. that concert performance. Yeah. And I wonder if that's happening in other industries, other sectors. So for writers, you sell books, but you're on the road a lot talking about this. I am on the road all the time. All the time. I think Bob Dylan and I, I think are <laughs> the two Americans who have been on the road the most. We call it, you know, Dylan, it's called the, uh, the never ending tour, I yes. think. And we call it in our family, the perpetual tuition tour. And I've been on the <laughs> perpetual tuition tour since 2000, really. I've not gone off it. My son, Luke, and I sat down in a slightly mordant spirit about a year ago. And I was, I have spoken about my books yes. in every state in the United States, except for North Dakota, Wyoming, and oddly, Louisiana. So yes, absolutely. The way you conduct your life as a writer now, if you have a family to support, is not simply by writing books, but by going out and talking about the books you've written. That's right. actually a better business model for a writer than staying yeah. home and hoping you sell books. It's really a backward thing because it takes away so much time from what your craft is. Totally. I mean, I'm sure you figured out how to write on the road because you're writing so much, but still, it's not the regular... Um, no, you see the circles beneath my eyes, which our <laughs> listeners cannot because, it, yes, you're on the road all the time. You can't... Look, I'm lucky and I'm not complaining because I get to do that and there are countless gifted journalists and fine writers who struggle in this to make a penny, much less to make 10 pennies to send their kids to school. But it's a huge adjustment. And to come back to our principal point, it has to do with the way that any capitalist economy, but the American one in particular, is designed to favor the interests of consumers over the 
the persistence of producers. And by the way, higher education has some of this going on with the online education and the price tags that exist, which is really based on brand reputation. And then a lot of a lot of hangers on, as I call them, which is another 200 schools that are charging an incredible amount of money when they there's not very much of an economic justification, but they can do it. That fascinates me. Maybe it takes us far afield, or we, but from an, an economist's point of view, the fact that Dartmouth, where we sit right now, is charging, I don't know what, $60,000 a year it to... be a touch higher, but might, let's leave that to the side. <laughs> <laughs> well, I pay an Ivy League tuition, so I know that actually doesn't have any economic justification, or do you mean that then the fact that sub-Dartmouth will be charging $45,000 does not that make market sense. That's an entire hour long conversation. But just in a nutshell, the universe of schools that don't have the same brand name and ability to create a job or be able to say, I went to this Ivy League school, which opens up a huge number of doors. There really is tremendous school privilege, not just white privilege, but school privilege. That's worth a lot. Yeah. That is really worth a lot. And that can be do- that can be documented. That's the first point. The second point is the actual tuition that any top school charges is still less than the total cost of producing for that one student, which is a little bit crazy when parents hear that. So yes, mean, I'm paying, se- paying $70,000 and you're losing money, money on my kid, right. on me. And that's because of the research infrastructure and the fact that the universities have become, there's a lot of gyms, there's athletic facilities for everything, there's beautiful dining halls. And that's kind of entry ticket to become a university now, at least in America. Yeah. You know, we're both originally from Canada. It's very right. different. To- totally Canada. different. Both. And the price tag is so much lower and the quality of the education is exceptional. It, equally, I went in my undergrad at McGill. My parents were profs at McGill for 40 years. I have five brothers and sisters, all academics. They all went to McGill. And I think five of the next generation, the grandchildren all went to McGill. Mm-hmm. And you can't begin to complain about the educational level there or at the University of Toronto or many other Canadian right. schools right. at a tenth the price, really, without exaggeration. Yeah. So the last point, and we, we need to take a, yeah. a quick break, is a lot of other schools, and this is gonna, this is already too elitist, but I think it's true. So there you go. Lots of schools just don't have the ability to attract the top, top students. They right. provide a service, but their price tag is often not commensurate with the earning opportunity mm-hmm. of those kids and the overall service and what they pay their faculty and what they pay their staff. It's very, very different. And that's the place where online education, I think, is really taking a bite. Take you know, if you're going to some school, I'm not going to mention the school, but North Southwest State School, right. and you're taking a chemistry class, you can go online and probably see an MIT professor deliver a lecture or a series of classes on chemistry, a Nobel Prize winning MIT professor. And how are you going to compete with that? You got to do something else. And that's what got us into this discussion is the performance art. Yes. You know, yes, so exactly. is there something about the experience of being in a room with another? Now, here's another problem. You have 300 people, but let's just say 25 or 30 kids. Is there something about that interaction, that experience that adds value? And the answer is there is. But then you got to be able to afford classes that have those small numbers, not these giant auditoriums. I will add only that as a parent of a kid who's in an Ivy League school. I won't name which one. The She is the happiest human being I've ever known right now at her college. And she is in large part because she is with like-minded people. It's like the Hogwarts phenomenon, right? You're finally with the wizards instead of the muggles like your parents. Now, the difference is in Hogwarts, they're really wizards who can do magic. <laughs> in Harvard, they're privileged kids who have been allowed in and begin to think of themselves mm-hmm. as though they're magicians. I understand that. But I also see that the cohort building, the generation building, mm-hmm. And there, I must say, and I do think that American universities do do a good job in this way, across class lines and across ethnic lines as well, so that my daughter's uh, first-year roommates were an Asian-American kid 
from a first generation family of dry cleaners someplace in a little suburb outside Chicago, a Canadian Russian kid whose parents were also first generation immigrants and so on. They don't do a poor job of constructing a genuinely diverse class, but clearly the function is primarily cohort building as much as it is education. Yeah, no, I think that's an absolutely fair point. I keep saying we have to take a break, but it's a great conversation. <laughs> You're making me think of something else. Just to kind of wrap up this segment, a lot of these kids that are first generation university kids that come from poor backgrounds, they might get full tuition. In all the cases I just cited, they yeah. did. They but do. But then they also have to live and their friends, many of them, are able to go do all sorts of stuff. Yeah. So, for example, here at Dartmouth, you see between Thanksgiving and after Thanksgiving, right. school ends earlier now and kids go all over and some of them do extra terms and even internships. But there are some kids that they're not doing that. They can't afford to do that. They don't have those opportunities or maybe they can't even fly back. I was home. about to say some of them, and this is what mm -hmm. Olivia's pointed out, and I was saying to her, she's a writer, a talented writer, and I hope she will become a writer. There's a beautiful novel to be done. Mm -hmm. about the Asian kids from Asia who can't go home. They can't afford yeah. the long flight home over Christmas and they stay on campus. Yeah. They're the stragglers. I wanted to ask you about when you started. You left Montreal and you moved to New York. This is around 1980 or so. so the summer of 1980. Summer of 1980. What was that like? How did New York smell? How did it look? How did it feel? Well, as you know, I've written a book called At the Stranger's Gate just yes. about this. My then girlfriend, Martha, now wife of 40 years, and we were bound together because we'd been to New York on some, in the summers that we were going to move to New York. In retrospect, I love Montreal more than ever. Montreal was a wonderful place to grow up. But we had that fire that burns inside some kids to get to the big stage. And we had loved New York. We loved Bloomingdale's, the Museum of Modern Art, the Whitney. Mm -hmm. And the idea of making a life in New York to us was irresistible. So we went down to the bus station. I mean, it's like out of a bad movie musical from the 1940s. We went down to the old bus station in Montreal, Place des Armes, if you recall. I do remember. And with a bus that said New York City on the front, oh, right? Man. And they put our bags in the hold. My dad came down to see us off. My dad gave me the soundest piece of advice I've ever been given. You know how it is when young men are leaving and women are leaving the provinces to go to Paris or London or New York. Their father is supposed to leave them some significant mm -hmm. piece of advice. If you remember, D'Artagnan's father in The Three Musketeers tells him, fight duels with everyone you meet when you get to <laughs> Paris. My father said to me, now just remember when you get to New York, never underestimate the other person's insecurity, which wow. is a really wise remark, and I've never known it to fail, that no matter who you meet, no matter how glamorous they may seem, no matter how powerful mm -hmm. They may be inside. They're raging with insecurities, too. Mm. And if you understand that about them and you value their insecurities, you will get along much better. And I've always found that to be true in every situation I've been in. My dad's a very wise man. He was that, a dean of students at McGill for many years. That is wise. Yeah. Thanks to your dad for that <laughs> Irwin, one. Irwin, so that, never too me. late for me to pick up on that. that. It's been true. Anyway, we got on the bus and we came to New York and we rented the smallest apartment in the world, certainly in New York. It was a nine by 11 basement room on the far eastern end of the Upper East Side, which in those days was still available to arriving New York pilgrims. Now everybody goes directly to Brooklyn and there. Yes, it's, and a spread yes, it's very right. different. But in those days, they would shut you in a drawer in the bottom of a building. So we had this basement. Nobody went to Brooklyn. In, no, nobody then. went to Brooklyn. No, at that point, that only relatively well-off people would buy townhouses in Brooklyn Heights sometimes. But if you arrived in New York on a bus to make yeah. your fortune, you did not go to Brooklyn. 
And it was strange, actually, because we expected to see one of those kind of um, fifth story apartments of the kind you would always see in those New York romantic comedies mm-hmm. of the 60s, you know, Barefoot in the Park and mm-hmm. Sunday in New York and Barefoot <laughs> on Sunday and all of those movies. And then we realized this fundamental New York realization. We only saw what they called, believe it or not, garden apartments, meaning basement apartments. And it was because the people who had rented the fifth floor apartment, the walk up in 1961, had never left. Nobody ever leaves an apartment in New York unless you get an enormous break. So everyone gets locked in place. You know, apartment hunting in New York is like a game of musical chairs with no music and no chairs. (laughs) So that's where we arrived. And it was a thrilling time to be young and in New York because on the one hand, the 1980s have since developed a reputation for being the worst of all time, being rough. And indeed they were. There was no air conditioning on the subways. The crime was still extremely high. And at the same time, the what's, you know, the greed is good decade was rising. And later on, I would actually, believe it or not, become the literary editor of GQ magazine, the men's fashion magazine. That was my first serious job, at which I met a then young David Remnick right out of... David uh, Remnick, the editor. The editor of The New Yorker was just out of Princeton and writing sports stuff, sports pieces for um, GQ. Little did either of us imagine. But in any case, when we were there... The editor, and this is in the end of uh, 83, said, there's a whole kind of boom in New York now, real estate boom. We should put some real estate guy on the cover of GQ. And lo and behold, in March, I think, of 84, with a piece written by Graydon Carter, the Voldemort, you must not be named, he was on the, on the cover. cover with a Richard Avenon photograph of him. And it was on the basis of that piece that Cy Newhouse owned The New Yorker and GQ in those days and Random House signed him up to do a book that became The Art of the Deal. So I have a tiny, tiny, least little finger on the fateful scales of history. I'm speechless. You're actually speechless. I mean, I, I mean, I like you, Adam, but now this is unbelievable. <laughs> so I'll just say one quick anecdote. So my wife and I moved to New York in 1983, and we were going to graduate school at Columbia. And Oh, my wife was in graduate school in Columbia in those years. Martha went to grad school at uh, in arts administration. In okay. My wife was in um, the medical school, MPH, right. and I yeah. did my PhD there. In any event, I remember the first time we were there, we were there to, I guess, I was doing interviewing with faculty in the university, which they do for PhD programs. And we were in the subway. I think we're staying in Midtown. We're going up to 116th and Broadway, which is where Columbia yeah. is. And we were huddled together and it looked pretty rough. <laughs> and this woman gets out a few stops before us and turns to us and says, you take care now. Like we're right off the boat from... Well, if, you uh, re- if you recall, it in the Columbia Handbook, as I say, I know because Martha went to Columbia. I went to the Institute of Fine Arts pretending to study art history. It said, don't take the A train, you know, the 8th Avenue train, take the Broadway train. They told her that, Because you don't want to cross what's, I guess, Morningside? now Mar- Morningside Park. Is that what which it's is, called? Well, it's now called Marcus Garvey Park, I think, okay. but Morningside Park. That's what it you was. don't want to cross because it's a very high crime area. Yes. And they didn't want goggle-eyed Canadians crossing this park and getting mugged. They told us that on the first day of yeah. orientation in the PhD program. Can you imagine? Now... To buy an apartment on the <laughs> overlooking border, this. overlooking it, would be way beyond anyone's means. That transformation in New York is difficult to credit. If someone had said to you or I in the early 80s, you know what, don't worry about it. In 30 years, 40 years time, the New York will be so safe that every supposedly dangerous area will be gentrified to the part where we'll produce a counter, a backlash. 
against gentrification and the level of violence in New York will be lower than it was a mm. hundred years ago. Yes. It wouldn't have just seemed optimistic. It would have seemed insane. Yes. Crazy. Yeah. But that was the world that we came of age in. It's one that obviously we all have enormous affection for our 20s, for our youth, for wherever mm. we were then. And it was in lots of ways, it was a wonderful time to come of age in New York. Soho, where we moved eventually, the neighborhood south of Houston Street, was, we were lucky enough to move eventually, was an actual living village of art in those years. Artists lived there still, and they no yeah. longer do. It was filled with galleries, which it no longer is. And one sense of the urgency of art was extraordinary when young painters like all became and remain, I hope, friends, uh, Eric Fischel, David Sally, so on, came forward. Yeah. There was a thrill. It was, you know, a double thrill. How dare they? They're awful. They're being paid too much and so on. But there was a sense that what was happening in New York, in the art world where I was located for a long time, but also in the musical world with Patti Smith or Talking Heads. Not as it happened, my taste in music run to swing and Broadway, but nonetheless, you could feel the ongoing excitement. And that's something, in fact, that as the cities become safer, has been lost. And, you know, there's no longer, for the first time in its modern history, there's no longer an avant-garde frontier in New York. It passed from the West Village to the East Village, from Soho to Tribeca, back to the East Village the Lower East Side. And now there's this fatal homogenization that's overcome New York, I think. And though we benefit enormously from the loss in violence and crime, we also lose something. Where is the avant-garde? Is it the case then that wealth will drive out because people can't afford to live anywhere, I suppose? Like yes. Soho, you were there, it was probably pretty cheap in those days. Yes, it was. And before it became the place to go for these lofts and outrageous prices. Right. Where are the creators that are Well, they're, the you know, they're in Brooklyn and the Bronx and Astoria. I mean, there's still, I think, young artists coming to New York, still come to New York and they go out. It creates a different world. I think it's fair to say, and I think that the young artists and writers I speak to and know well would agree with this, because that vital sense of social and cultural compression, which is essential for advance, a funny word, but are periods of intense artistic creativity, whether it's Florence in the 15th century or... Mm-hmm. New York in the 1980s, that sense of people being right on top of one another mm-hmm. is diminished. It's always been one of my reasons I've always thought that Paris became the center of the art world and London did not. London is too spread out, right? Yeah, you know, yeah. London has got too many wings and distances. In its very physical compression, mm-hmm. classical Paris, I think, lent itself to that kind of competition, competitive excitement. Now, do you think also there's a lot of young artists in all kinds of different places where they're you tell me because you're in that community or connected to that community, but they know about Twitter. They know about social media. They know they need to promote themselves yes. more than, I don't know whether it's more than ever before, but well, maybe the means of The means so are different. There. And also, you know, a lot of things get much more centrifugal. The things are spread out. People go to Detroit now because you can get cheap yeah. loft space in Detroit mm. in a way you can't anymore in New York. Anyway, we were, with all the necessary anxieties that attend on anybody's ascent in the world, We were deliriously happy in those years in New York, and I was blessed to have a great teacher. I started in art history, and it was simply a blind, because I wanted to get to The New Yorker. As I always say, when I've been working for The New Yorker for, by 1983, I've worked for The New Yorker for 20 years. They just didn't know it yet. (laughs) So I did want to get very much to New Yorker, which happened in May of 1986. But I was also blessed to have actually found a great, I hate the word mentor, because it always implies a sort of relationship of obligations. Mm but a great teacher, which is a blessed word, in the late Kirk Varnado. My teacher and then became the director of the Museum of Modern Art. So within the space of six years, I found myself at the center of two institutions that I had 
revered my whole life in the Museum of Modern Art and the New Yorker. So I was right. incredibly lucky and blessed. You know, you did a second coming to New York after the Paris uh, yes. years. And that was a different stage of your life. I will say it was. Yeah, you <laughs> will say. Yeah. What did it feel like when you came back? I wrote a book about that called Through the Children's Gate. Those are my two New York books, At the Stranger's Gate and Through the Children's Gate. Well, we had two young children and we were in the manner of our generation completely obsessed with them. So the kids were the primary element. We came back to a New York in 2000, which couldn't have been more different from the one we'd arrived in in 1980. It was, as we were talking before, at the absolute height, the apogee of New York wealth and power. I remember my dear friend Kirk Varnett was saying that when they were raising money for the new Museum of Modern Art, they were building Mm -hmm. another one. They've built another one since. They continually (laughs) rebuild it. They just went around the, they needed to raise, I'm going to make up the number, like $250 million. And they went around the rows of trustees and they had the money by the time they got to trustee (laughs) number six, (laughs) trustee number six, because there was just so much money in New Mm -hmm. York in that period, still philanthropically arced, but in a way perhaps it is not as securely now. In any case, so it was this time of enormous abundance. It was the new Gilded Age. I think David Remnick was the one who came up with that title. Mm-hmm. And we published an anthology. Yeah. And the first piece I published when I came back to New York was called The Hazard of No Fortune. And what I had done was to look at one of my favorite, if too little remembered American novelists, William Dean Howells, had written a book, mm-hmm. believe it or not, a great book called The Hazard of No Fortune, A Hazard of New Fortune, New, new Fortune, that was just about a guy in the magazine business coming mm-hmm. to New York to look for an apartment with his family. Mm-hmm. Exactly the situation I found myself in. Mm-hmm. So it was a comparison of these two moments, the yes. old Gilded Age and the new Gilded Age. And it's still a piece I'm proud of. And that was, it was just overwhelming, to which was added, and this was the peculiar twist from having lived in Paris for all those years, your realization, which is hard won for a North American of any kind, that of how shallowly rooted North American civilization is. You know, after you've spent five years in Paris, which dates back a thousand years to 2,000 years, Mm -hmm. but where even familiar monuments like the Invalide or are hundreds and hundreds of years old, go Mm -hmm. back to the 17th century, where Notre Dame goes back to 1,200, 1,100. And then you would go past by St. Patrick's Cathedral and you realize, my goodness, that's kind of a phony building. That's not (laughs) actually a Gothic (laughs) cathedral. That was built like 80 years ago to look like a Gothic cathedral. Mm. And so your sudden awareness of the shallow implantation of American culture became quite overwhelming. You came back in 2000. Right. Within a year, September 11th happened. And do you remember where you were that Oh, my God, yes. I think of it all the time because it is astonishing that in the turn of the millennium, 2000, Mm -hmm. it had seemed no country, even the British Empire at its height, had been in such a position of financial, cultural, military power Mm -hmm. as the United States was then. And then 9-11 happened. And not through the events, horrific though they were, but through our response to those events that... Which continues to this day. Which continues to this day, began to crack And suddenly one was aware. And I think I can honestly, I was aware on that day. Oh, my God, this is Mm. the Vandals have reached Rome. This is the onset of the First World. It's a moment when we begin the descent downward. David Remnick called me at 8 a.m. or whenever it was. A plane has hit the World Trade Center. You should Mm -hmm. go down because I'd come back home just to write about New York as I had written about Paris. So I headed downtown. And the subway stopped and I got off and somebody had a TV in a window or something. And there was the second plane hitting and when David had called me, the first instinct was, oh, it's an accident, a horrific accident of some kind. It was clearly not. And I walked. You couldn't take the subway. I walked all the yeah. way home that day. I wrote about it, actually. 
In retrospect, I will say, and I am rarely prescient and even less often right, but the theme of what I was writing in those days, which was somewhat controversial, is we don't know what's happening. We are all so thrown by this that we can't evaluate adequately what's going on and we should not try to. We should let it play out. It's like being given a diagnosis in a funny way. And the worst thing we can possibly do is panic. My dear friend, I've mentioned now several times, Kirk Varnado was, by that point, was dying of cancer. And he was furious. The only person I knew who was furious at the hysterical panic that had overtaken everyone about the next assault going yeah. to come and so on. Yeah. He said, where's that American spirit, which he thought of in terms of that wonderful movie, Apollo 13, mm-hmm. right? Where Ed Harris mm-hmm. plays, uh, what's his name? Not Chris Craft, but um, Gene Kranz. He plays Gene yes, Kranz. Yes. And he says, let's work the problem, gentlemen. Let's not make things worse by guessing. That's let's right. all work the problem. Mm-hmm. Nobody was saying at that point, let's work the problem. Mm-hmm. Let's calm down. Let's work the problem. Register it at its own significance. Because in retrospect, of course, we can say now, almost 20 years later, that the specter of terror that active terrorism created turned out to be completely... False. Now, I recognize that our security services have doubtless done many good deeds along the way. But the truth is that was the anomaly. That was the outlier. And building an entire military national security culture, which has us still in Afghanistan to this day, and taking off our shoes when we go try and get on airplanes, Mm -hmm. has done us more harm. The autoimmune reaction Mm -hmm. to that one terrorist event, I think, has done us infinitely more harm most visibly and notably in the war in Iraq than everything else. Coming back to the immediate impact on a New York and a New York family, we had to raise our kids in the shadow of that fear. Not us alone, but millions of people. And that created an environment which we never expected and didn't know. I say in the book, in the introduction to Children's Gate, that we had to live in shadow in ways that we didn't. The shadow of fear, the shadow of 9-11, and all the subsidiary shadows. But as I say, shadows are all we have to show the shapes that light can make. So as a consequence, the pleasures and the intensities of that period are ones that I think about with enormous pleasure. I wrote the story at that point, which people still tell me about and more annoyingly mentioned to my daughter, Olivia. When Olivia was three, she invented, had an imaginary friend named Charlie Ravioli. And the key thing about Charlie Ravioli was that he was always too busy to play with her. <laughs> she would talk to him on her imaginary friends like, call me, call me when he gets back. Oh boy. And she was making up this imaginary friend who was too busy to play with her in response to the New York world that she mm. was being exposed to, mm. which was always one of missed engagements and last minute dashes and people hopping into taxis. And that became incredibly dear to us exactly because it represented the New York we loved at a moment when that New York seemed threatened. Yeah. So you're a writer at The New Yorker for decades now. What is that like? I've been at The New Yorker now for 39 years, if you can can imagine. So really, essentially, my whole adult life I've spent there. Breaking into The New Yorker was, and I hear I quote John Updike, who said the same thing about his own entrance there, was the great good fortune of my professional life. Yes. Without question, it was a magazine and a tradition that I had always loved. Loved not because it was, well, not simply because it was a wonderful platform for a writer, which obviously it is, but because its specific traditions, the tradition of Thurber and White, Liebling and Mitchell, of S.J. Perlman and on and on, Mm -hmm. Veronica Gang, were all ones that I had grown up not just reading, but Mm -hmm. emulating and admiring. So The New Yorker has an enormous specificity of its traditions, and those specificities, which I try to protect with every sentence I write are the ones that meant the most to me. Yeah. And so, of course, you don't sit around a writer's room. (laughs) No. Like the Dick Van Dyke show. (laughs) You all do your own thing in different places. As you already said, you're on the road a lot. But 
do you interact with other writers? I'm sure you do. Sure. No, I mean, if, you know, my circle of friends is largely drawn from other New Yorker writers who sit around so grousing can, can and, and, and editors. Grousing, and, so can and we do a quick, not quite word association, sure. but sentence association, sure. if you will. So these are some of my favorites. And actually, when you start to look at the list, I have to stop yeah. after five or six. It's too many. But Jill Lepore. Jill, I don't know well at all, but of course, Jill and I share a certain semantic space, I suppose, along with Louis Menand, who is a very close friend, because one of the things that The New Yorker has always done, but does more now than ever, is to sort of have scholarly essays without scholarly apparatus, so to speak, you know, so that when Jill takes on a book about George Washington or something, she's bringing the full weight of a major professional and academic mind to it. In the past, we had figures like that. Edmund Wilson is a hero of mine, Hannah Arendt in another way. But we do it now, I think, more than ever. And I think that we've inherited a great deal, I shouldn't say this because I revere that publication, of the role that the New York Review of Books once played as well. Mm -hmm. So that we're sort of giving you a liberal arts education. You pick up a piece of mine on Diderot, let's say, or a piece of Jill's on uh, Washington or Reconstruction or whatever, you're going to get a little education. You're going to get a little course in what scholars are saying, what the revisionist history is, and what we think the truth is. So you're making me think about something else, which is you were thinking about an academic path yourself at one Brief, stage. Briefly. Brief, very briefly. I, I come I from an academic family. I have five brothers and sisters. All of them are academics except me. They all have PhDs except me. I am, that's called a Jewish dropout. <laughs> in a, in a, in a, <laughs> you must have felt some pressure. No, No, not really. You know, curiously enough, my father always recognized that I was a writer and he wanted me to be a writer and an artist. My mother and my mother was a wonderful scientist, a very distinguished one. But she had always wanted to be a painter and an architect. So I felt, if anything, I felt the impulsion in the other direction. How did you know you were a writer? I've told this story, but it's true. I loved to read from when I was very little. James Thurber, Mm -hmm. great New Yorker writer, was my favorite. And I literally read the Thurber Carnival to pieces when I was seven and eight. I don't know, actually, Sid, if I fully understood that it was comedy and humor, but I was just addicted to the yeah. spell of the sentences. And then on a memorable night, I wanted to go to see a spy movie. I was crazy about James Bond and the man from Uncle when I was 10. And my parents had kiboshed it at the last minute as parents kibosh plans, mm. not out of animus, but just out of busyness and mm. something else to do. And I wrote them a long, indignant letter explaining how <laughs> unjust, it was like a legal brief that Larry <laughs> Tribe or someone would have done, explaining how deeply unjust this was and how violated understandings and promises made to this party previously. I slipped it under their door. And my dad, dear man, came. I didn't realize you felt this strongly about it. Of course, you can go to the movie if this is how strongly you feel. And I thought, oh, this is interesting. <laughs> you just figured out something. <laughs> yes. Ah, <laughs> you put words down on paper, yeah. and it actually changes people's consciousness in your direction and that's your right. behalf. So that's when I knew that I was going to be a writer. I never thought of being anything but a writer. Back to a couple more right. New Yorker legends. Uh, Ken Aletta. Ken, I know well, and Ken's been around. Ken, like me, has been around forever. Ken is someone who's written for The New Yorker over countless periods. I once had a, inherited an assistant from Ken, and she reported to me what is, I think, is Ken's secret, and I think is the secret of much good writing. Look for the conflict. In other words, mm-hmm. what makes his stuff interesting, I think, particularly about the world of high communications. And he writes media a lot moguls, about business as well. Business and media moguls and so on, is that he always knows that the story is in the conflict and the personalities are best seen in a moment of high conflict. You know, that was the primary lesson I learned from a screenwriting class yes. I took. Without a conflict, there's not a movie. Exactly. And that's true about journalism, too, even though you have to, you have the additional burden of fact that you don't have anything. <laughs> Unreasonable, but that's where, but yes, yes. But that's where it is. 
Atul Gawande. Atul is someone I think the world very of. Very influential. Very in influential. Writing. And I've been lucky enough to watch his career as a writer go from being a young medical student, I think he still was when he started with us, or a resident. Yeah. There's an extraordinary editor at The New Yorker who I've worked with now for 25 years named Henry Finder, who's a kind of quiet legend in, in his world. He's Malcolm Gladwell's editor, mine, and Atul's. And he, I think it's fair to say, discovered Atul and discovered this brilliant young writer and doctor. I have this sense, Atul would speak for himself, that Atul is sometimes torn between his literary urges and his medicinal urges. Yeah. He's becoming more and more a figure in the world of public health. But he's a remarkable guy. Many of the New Yorker writers have written books, of course, you have many. How does that actually work? You get time off or that you do on the side or? It varies. A lot of writers take what's called book leave, where you mm-hmm. take time off for six months, a year, however long. I've never, A, been able to afford and B, had the temperament mm-hmm. to, I can't, if I would panic if I were working only on one thing at a time. <laughs> I'm on my desk in my office in New York. I keep eight stones that were given to me by a great friend, the photographer, Richard Avedon. Oh, yeah. And I have eight projects always going on at one time. Always eight. Well, it varies. But it usually ends up being about eight. And I like that. I like having lots of things going on. How do you switch from one to the other? It's a talent. That's what I do. That's what what I'm good at doing. I like it too. I find that they cross-fertilize and cross-breed. Of course, people who don't like what I do will say, oh, that explains the (laughs) glibness and inauthenticity of what he does. But I find, you know, that if you were only doing one thing, you'd become forgive me, you become an academic. You become somebody who goes so deep into something that Mm -hmm. they can't see why it matters, Mm -hmm. which is always, as you know, is an academic disease, right? Mm -hmm. Knowing what made it, but not knowing why it matters anymore. Yeah, well, that's a whole other topic. Why it matters is unbelievably important. And unfortunately, there's a lot of academic research, which is beautiful scholarship. But at the end of the day, what have we got? So that's one of the the joys for me. So, and you know, it's temperamental for me. I read all the time. The one thing I will isolate as an actual gift. Like the X-Men, you know, every one of the X-Men has gifts. Some of them have gifts like they can see through walls and others like have wings in the back of their, you know, (laughs) very varied kinds of gifts. The only gift I have is I read a lot. I love to read and I can read rapidly and still take it in. So for me, one of the joys of writing is to read a lot and I'm anxious or eager to tell you what I just read. So that's a a large part of it. Right. Which is great because that's what you want. It's what you want writers to be able to convey that to you in a way that makes you want to read it and learn something. The great education I got at the New Yorker, because some of that was reading is what graduate students do as well. It's Mm -hmm. what we're forced to. One of my children now is a graduate student. He does nothing but read. Mm. But when I started working at the New Yorker, I was put on the talk of the town beat. Now, talk of the town still exists, but it tends to be shorter and a little more newsy. In those days, it was real reporting pieces, often 1,500 words, fairly long, about eccentricities around New York. And I was sent out on the subway with little pink slips in my hand to cover a table hockey tournament in Flatbush or meet a slack rope walker who lived on the East River. And being liberated to report, Mm -hmm. learning how to listen, learning how to observe, that was the great drill the great boot camp of my life mm. as a writer. It's still my happiest time as a writer was the mm. six years I wrote Talk of the Town anonymously. Wow. And I learned my craft. And one piece of the craft I learned is that as graduate students, and I'm sure you see this all the time, you're taught to write contentiously with buts. Professor Finkelstein says A, but, but. Da- data shows B, yes. right? You know, Professor Gopnik, Dean but. Gopnik says A, but. To write narrative, you write just with ands. You have to mm. turn those habits of contentiousness. You don't become less contentious, mm-hmm. but you learn to write a stream of prose where the connectives are 
quieter in some ways more subtle. And then, and then more subtle. It builds up into it, the, right. the butt is only too exactly. clear. Exactly. The butt is only too clear at the end, but the butt hits you over the head at the end yes. or in the middle rather than having that kind of relentless raindrop insistence. And so that was my great task as a writer was to move from butts to ends. So one thing I wanted to ask you real quick, because just about out of time, is you write about your life. And you said, I think, in two or three different occasions when I asked you about something, and I wrote about that. And so when you're actually living your life, are you thinking about, in any way, the writing you're going to do about that moment? Oh, totally. To return to Paris the Moon, the way that book grew up is is that we'd be sitting around a table or sharing stories with friends who were visiting from New York, and I'd say, the gym I'm going to is so weird, right? (laughs) So because they offer you chocolate truffles when you go, and the showers don't work, they don't have any towels. I would tell these stories and you would see people respond, right? And you'd say, oh, that's a story. Mm -hmm. And that's core of literary occupation, whether you're James Joyce or anyone, is identifying stories, seeing where the narrative impulse is in something. So it's not so much as I'm living something that I say, I am living this in order to write about it. But inevitably, you realize what parts of your life suddenly have anecdotal intensity. And from anecdotal intensity, you hope to arrive at literary significance. One of the great things in my life over the past decade in particular has been that I started doing public storytelling for The Moth, a wonderful storytelling group in New York, now serve on the board, and nonprofit storytelling group. And that discipline of having to turn life into 10-minute tales has been incredibly good to the point where I now do a one-man show of my own, a storytelling show, which I traipse around the wow, country. that's great. From many, I'll be in San Diego on November 21st, just doing my one-man show. So that's been a fantastic part of it. Of course, I thought the question you were going to ask me, because it's the one people often do, is what do your kids think about being <laughs> the, the subjects of your inspection? And the truth is, is people might have noticed if they read me at all, is it's been a long time since I've written about family life for about the kids. They're now 24 and 19, and their life very much belongs to them. So the only story I can really write is about missing them. Hmm. Last quick question. Speaking about family, and you've written about and mentioned your wife. How did you guys meet? We met when we were really young. Martha was 17 the first time I saw her, 18 when we began to date. It's a joke, but true that I took her out on her 19th birthday, but she already had a dinner date, a lunch date, and a tea date. She penciled me in for the breakfast slot. That's true. But at least she gave me the breakfast slot. You got something. I got something, which tells about what an attractive teenager she was, and also about her slightly regal princess-like manners. We met at a party that her sister was throwing, and then we met again in junior college, just before college. We started dating right away. Whirlwind romance for me, something less than a whirlwind for her, I suspect, This wise man said once, I actually wrote a song about this. One of the best things I've ever written is a song called Lucky. And wise man said once that you don't have one marriage that works, Mm -hmm. that if you're lucky, you have many marriages with the same person. Mm -hmm. And when I review our life, I see many marriages. Mm -hmm. First marriage of sex and romance, the second marriage of children Children. and responsibility, the third marriage of older children, which is a different marriage, right, where you're trying to help them escape and help yourself escape. Mm -hmm. And now we're into the fourth marriage of shared freedom, which resembles Mm -hmm. the first marriage, but isn't the same as the first marriage. You can't go back to the first marriage. So we're on marriage four right now. And um, that is, I really like that. I've been married for 36 years. I understand what you mean. Yes, I think it's true. And I think what happens most often with couples is that you hit one of those marriages, Marriage two, marriage three, marriage four. And 
it doesn't survive that. It's not that your marriage has mm -hmm. not survived. It's that you're not ready for the next marriage in the sequence. Some reason that isn't going to happen. As I say, I wrote a song about this for it with the great composer David Shire. I will send you the MP3. We'll put it on with the podcast. I'd love out. it if you did. Adam Gopnik, thank you so much for spending some time with us on the SIDCast. Delighted to do it. Thanks for listening to the SIDCast. I am so appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode, and I'd love to hear from you. If you have any questions, suggestions for guests, or any suggestions at all, please contact me via our website, www.thesidcast.com, or email me directly, sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune in to another one of our episodes, and please give us a five-star review and share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The SIDCast is produced by the Podcast Laundry production company and always recorded live and in person with our guest of the week.